I invite you to First Peter chapter one. Finishing this chapter finally. While you're turning there, just like to let you know that almost everywhere I go I encounter changes. Either things fade or diminish or disintegrate, age, sour, lose some element or property that they have, or die. It can be the things I own and even what I am. (laughs) And things around me, it just changes. Because these things are temporary. However, there are some things that don't change. We want to look at one of those this morning and how that affects us, how that should affect us in at least three ways. This unchanging situation, this unchanging thing. I've entitled it, When Power and Permanence Rules My Heart. And it is the power and the permanence of the Word of God. I'd like to begin reading in First Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 22. We'll read through into chapter 2, verse 3. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth and through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as a flower of grass, The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Let's first look at the premise of this, the power and the permanence of the word. The Bible tells us here, verse 23 to 25, it describes this incorruptible word. We've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Now children, I want to tell you something here. About seed. You've probably seen seeds. Your mom has seeds, or dad, whoever does the gardening around your place. And you, you see these seeds and they, they look like nothing. They look like just dried, shriveled up stuff. You go to the corn bin and you see seed. Corn uh, kernels. Or oats, or wheat, or barley... Or you see this. Or your mom opens a package of, of uh, carrot seeds or beets or cucumbers or, or whatever. And they just look like shriveled up dry little things. That's all they are. There's something in most of them. Even though it looks dry and shriveled up in many of those seeds there is life 
there is something inside, even though like the outside looks dead, and it looks as if it's useless, and it means nothing, but inside there is something, a little something there. That if you plant that, something happens. It starts to grow. So that means, now something can't grow from nothing. It has to start with life. Only life can make more life. Except God. God can make anything. But God has made it so that life has to come from life. And so if you want to plant, if you want to have carrot seeds this summer, you're going to have to have carrots, uh, plants this summer. You're going to have to have carrot seeds that, that have little life in there. It will look like dry things, those seeds. They will look like dry. But if you plant them, they will grow. But there's something that happens when you plant those seeds. In order for those seeds to grow, we had it in our adult lesson this morning, those seeds have to die. Because once those seeds are planted in the ground, and then they start growing, you think you can get another, you could get that seed back again? Uh-uh. Even if you could see the shell of that seed, even if you could still see a little bit of the seed there, that seed died. It gave, it gave away its life so that another plant could grow. That's what it did. You can't get that same seed back. It can make more seeds if that plant gets big and produces seeds. But that seed itself can never be itself again and alive. It can't. That seed died. But God says, there is a seed that doesn't die. It grows, but it doesn't die. And that is the Word of God. When that seed gets planted in our heart, then we grow spiritually, we become more like Jesus. But that doesn't mean that the Word of God now died. It's still there. Just like that seed, and not, not like that seed which dies so that something can grow. But the Word of God when we take it into our hearts, and I heard you reciting the Sunday school verses again, you know, children, keep on doing that. That is wonderful because you are planting seeds in your hearts by doing that. Keep on doing that. That's good seed. And it will stay. And it will grow if you allow it to. So keep on doing that. After church, you come see me. Now, I'll give you something that will cause you to grow, too. Okay. Peter tells us that we're born again, not of a corruptible seed that dies. 
but of a, uh, of a seed that doesn't die. Now, that's the only kind of seed that, that works that way. And that is the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. He says, everything else is like grass. That seed gives off his life, and new grass is, is produced, bears fruit, bears seed, and the same process goes over and over again. But he says, the Word of the Lord is, abides forever. Even the glory of man is something that's temporal. But God's word offers something that is lasting, that is permanent, that is fixed, that doesn't change. It is unmoving. It keeps its beauty. It keeps its power. See, and we also know that that we can change and mutate Plants, GMO, and they do all these things by by dabbling with seed and by dabbling with plants and and the and the genetic makeup of these things in order to, they say, improve stuff. But the word of the Lord is the same word of the Lord as when God first breathed it to man. It hasn't changed a bit. It's the same, it's the same thing. There's nothing been added to it. There's nothing been taken from it. There's nothing been modified about it. It's not a GMO product. It's the real. It's the, because it, it is the thoughts of God. And God doesn't change. And children, that's the wonderful thing about the Bible. These are really God's thoughts. This is what God thinks. This describes God, and God describes himself, and this describes the real. And it doesn't change. We're born again of this kind of a seed when we're God's people by this everlasting, alive Word of God. And it changes us. This is the Word which by the Gospel was preached unto us. Peter uses Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, as, as his background for these things. Where basically, like I said, the seed loses its life in order to produce more seed. It degenerates into an unproductive state. But the word of God is always alive. And so that means if something isn't growing, it isn't necessarily the seed's fault if the seed had life. If somebody isn't growing spiritually, you can't blame it on the word. There must be some other factor that caused that's that's causing the situation to happen the way it is. But when this seed is in our hearts, when we are born again by this incorruptible seed, there's at least three things that should evidently happen.
fact, they must. These are natural, normal results of incorruptible seed. They need to be. And again, as I said, if these results are not there, don't blame the seed. It's not because it's bad seed. Something else isn't working. And the first result is verse 22. Love. It says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Peter says, You have purified your souls by obedience to the truth, by responding to the truth of this incorruptible seed. And you have allowed the Lord to cleanse your hearts. You've been born again. Obedience to the truth cleanses the soul. And he says, and by doing that, and by you, this happens through the Spirit. Through God's Spirit working in the hearts. And the result is an unfeigned, a genuine love for the brethren. That means that it's not a it's not a love that's that's hidden behind a or or that that's portrayed from somewhat from behind a mask. Not hypocritical. Now the word unfeigned means that it's real, it's genuine, it's the way it really is. It's not acted. It's not it's not a an acted portrayal of something that isn't really the way it is. It seems that Peter is writing to some people that may have had a problem of putting on a mask when it came to loving their brothers and sisters. Maybe it was because they wanted to be connected with the, some of the worldly lifestyle and the worldly people that they had been connected with earlier. And so in order to do that, you know, you, 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 cannot, you cannot just throw all your love on these weird Christians. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was that there were some certain upper class people who had been worldly, who became Christians and they didn't really want to connect with the slave Christian. You know, there was a, there was a, a bit of a racial or a, a, a level of position, you know, of condescending because of, of who you were in, in, in society. Maybe it was that. But Peter says, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, you become Christians through the Spirit, and you are having a, an, unf an unfeigned, a genuine phileo love. The term there, the first one there, is phileo. That's where you like someone, you have an affection, you have a fondness, you have a human attachment to this individual. And really, 
When a person becomes a Christian, we should love other brethren, right? Because they are our friends. We enjoy being with brothers and sisters because we have a like-mindedness and hopefully we think a bit alike and we, and we have similar interests and, and we have similar affinities and, and there's a fondness, especially as we relate to one another more and more frequently, um, so on. But then Peter says something strange. He says, you have this unfeigned love of a brother. Genuine phileo. He says, now see to it that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Why does he tell loving people to love? It's because this second time he says that you love one another, that's agape. So basically, and I guess it's Valentine's Day, which is, you know, always really mushy phileo stuff, probably more. And he's really saying, take it to a deeper level. Take it to the real level. Love out of your heart because of the preciousness of the person that you're loving. And that includes self-sacrifice for the benefit of the individual. Do, do, not, do not just love because there's a fond affection and a, a personal attachment and um, uh, uh, you know, that type of thing. Take it to its deepest level for the benefit of the other. even if that becomes a sacrifice of benefiting myself. Love your brother because he is precious to Christ. Be willing to sacrifice for him. Rejoice in his welfare. Really, filial love can be rather selfish. Fondness and affection... We can, we can dote and we can do these kinds of things uh, because we have a personal agenda. But Peter says, take it to the level of agape. Someone has written and said, we share phileo love because we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we have likenesses. But we should share agape love because we belong to God and can overlook the differences because we have a commitment to Christ and to each other. Agape love doesn't cancel out phileo love. Agape love just totally surrounds phileo love. Love without of a pure heart with an intensity and a warmth that is genuine, that is intense, that is spiritual, that is fervent. He says that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently, heartily. It's not talking about just gushy, mushy kind of things. There's a place for some of that appropriately. But it's talking about a love that is just totally deep-hearted. 
And that's the kind of love that brethren need. That's the kind of love brethren need to give. Someone has said, love to Christian brethren springs up in the soul of everyone who is truly converted. It's not an option. In fact, what is 1 John chapter 4? We won't read the verses 70 to 21. It's a long passage. But the Apostle John basically says, if you don't love the brethren, it's an obvious indication you don't love God. These two things are, are, are definitely connected. And if you love God, love for the brotherhood is, must be there. It's not a choice. It's part of the same package. Because we've been purified through the unchanging, eternal Word of God. Which has its, the Word of God has its roots in God and love, agape love has its roots in God as well. Agape love isn't something that you and I somehow some scrounge up. It's something that, that we have, we start with because of a relationship with the Lord. And because we've experienced His agape love and we've embraced that, then we also have the seed with which to demonstrate that to others. God's quickening work gives a new nature for us to express to new relatives, brothers to express it to. And so the question is, do I love my brothers and sisters for their benefit without regards necessarily for mine? Am I selective as to which brother and sister I love? Agape. Am I committed to them? Because if I'm not, I need to ask myself, am I then committed to our Father? And if I genuinely do love my brothers and sisters, do I allow God to work in their hearts, not for my benefit, but that the character of Christ will be portrayed in them? Am I willing to sacrifice without personal benefit or recognition? And is my love hearty, genuine, warm? Appropriate, of course. Is it really there? Someone has said, Christians ought to love one another not, not as if we are brethren, but because we are brethren. Secondly, if we have this incorruptible seed in us, there should be a change in our actions. First of all, there's a change in our love. Secondly, change in our actions. Chapter 2, verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside, because this new life is there, there's some things got to change. There's some new experiences that we need to be expected. There are some things that are inconsistent with this new life and they need to be done away with once and for all. They need to be stripped away, thrown aside. Malice. Lay aside malice. 
Actually, the word malice means any kind of wickedness. And we often associate with that slow-burning anger, with hard, cold resentment, settled, you know, kind of evil on ice, just waiting, waiting to, be, just keeping it cool till the right moment that I can <clears throat> explode. And Peter says, "That's got to go." That's not part of having the new nature. That's not part of having the incorruptible seed in your hearts. Rather, there needs to be love. There needs to be forgiveness without strings attached. Laying aside all guile. Now, guile is what some of us do when we go fishing. right. We trick fish into believing that it's just food we're giving them and not a hook. That's guile. That's deceit. That's craftiness. We're misleading these fish. And Peter says, he's not talking about fish, by the way. He's talking about we need to lay aside guile, this deceptive, crafty, misleading spirit. It needs to be truth, honest, the real. So the Christian life doesn't have room for malice, it doesn't have room for this deceptiveness. And it doesn't have room for hypocrisies, which is related to it. Again, as I said before, hypocrisy has to do... Uh, a hypocrite was really one who acted in a way that he really wasn't. Or who would judge, but from behind a mask. I understand in Roman times, very often judges... If you saw the judge, you didn't know who he was because they would they would be masked so that when any judgment they made, they would you, you couldn't identify who they were. Kind of, and and Peter says that's not how the Christian lives. We we don't look like something that we really aren't, but rather we're genuine. goes along with the guile. Wherefore laying aside all envies, ooh, resentment because of another person's blessing, being jealous or discontent about where the next person is at in relationship to me. Really, I found this interesting. Somebody said that resentment always, envy always arises because a person has an elevated view of himself. And that causes people to be envious over the next person because my position, my, my level, my place, my is being challenged, is being threatened by somebody else. And Peter says there's no room for that. 
Rather, we need to be well-wishing, humble, wishing the best for the other. Even if it is a whole lot better than what I am experiencing. And laying aside all evil speakings, defaming, slandering, speaking down, discrediting, belittling. Rather, our lips need to be guarded as well as our hearts. Not only by what we say, by how we say it. And as the scripture says, that we need to be edifying, encouraging, speaking into the life truth, yes. And sometimes we need to say things that are not easy to be said. But we do not belittle, we do not defame, we do not strike down. But we are there to build up, to bless to encourage, to benefit, even if it is by a correction. So Peter is saying, all these negative things are not part of eternal seed. So first of all, our love pattern changes when a person is born again by incorruptible seed. Second, our action patterns change. Our attitude patterns change. And thirdly, our appetite patterns change. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if so be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you have tasted that God is good, if you've been born again and you've tasted the goodness of God, it's going to show in what you enjoy eating. One healthy indicator of life is appetite, hunger. And if the incorruptible seed of the Word of God is in us, there should be this true love, there should be this true action, but there should also be a true nourishment then. The Word of God does stimulate healthy appetite. Not for junk food, harmful stuff, but for the, the Word not for entertainment, but for enrichment, growth. And sometimes the word even does its antioxidant effect too, of cleansing out the trash and the rubbish that's somehow accumulated and collected there. Peter says, as sincere as newborn babes desire the sincere, the true milk, not diluted, not added to kind of stuff, but the pure word, the real word. Yes, there it is appropriate to read godly books that explain the word of God or the 
that give inspiration, spiritual inspirations and so on. But if my only diet, if my diet excludes this, I will become a malnourished Christian at best. He says, desire the sincere milk of the word so that you can grow. Desire the word because we get to know the author of the word this way. Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow. And you will experience that he is excellent that the Lord is gracious, that you found him to be all that he says he will be. Yearn for this word intensely. I know some of you young people just 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 uh, came out of Bible school. The challenge will be, I mean, and you sat there and you studied and you and you you had chapel every morning and prayer meeting every night of some kind and you sat in classes and you sat in the library and you dug and i am sure i am sure that 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 you grew i hope so if you went there for the right reason you grew you may not have not might not be able to have that same time now this week and next week but don't lay it aside and say, well, I'm done. Keep, keep on, keep on, make it a regular habit to keep on digging, keep on milk and meat. Of course, you want to well, go on to that. Keep on eating, growing. Personal devotions, personal study of the scriptures, being at church, being involved in Bible study, and so on. Continue to have a healthy appetite for real food. The stuff that causes growth. Dear ones, when the Word of God, the incorruptible seed which lives and abides forever, when that penetrates our hearts and we are born again this way it changes how I love it changes how I act and it changes how I eat because it is eternal seed at work eternal seed that's alive